If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bibles in the pews in front of you. If you really don't even want to do that, most of the scripture verses are going to be up here on the screen. Cody, are we good up there, big fella? Okay, buddy. Um, If you're a guest here, normally we walk through books of the Bible sequentially, uh, expositional preaching, but uh, since coming back from the coronavirus, we've been putting a pause on the book of Leviticus. Again, don't worry, we're going to get back to the lepers, okay? But right now we're talking about love. Uh, The first two uh, sermons in the sermon series on love were about loving God. The first was to answer the question, why should we love God? The second was to answer the question, how should we love God? Now we're moving on to the second greatest greatest commandment, love thy neighbor. Today we're going to answer the question, why? Why should we love our neighbor? Next week we're going to answer the question, how should we love our neighbor? So uh, the first scripture that we have up on the screen this morning uh, is from Jesus and from an interaction that he had with the scribes and the Pharisees where they are once again trying to trip him up, trick him, test him. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and the Pharisees, excuse me, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, I think we all know as Christians, and if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I bet you probably still know because you live in this vague Christian milieu that is America, even if we're becoming post-Christian, you understand that the two most important things we need to do is love God and love neighbor. There's nothing particularly controversial about that. But when you think about that second commandment, the command to love your neighbor, I wonder how you think about it. I wonder how important you think it really is, particularly in relation to the first commandment, to love God. I've often found it to be the case that we tend to view the command, love thy neighbor, as a really important command, at least in theory, as a really important command, but still far, far, far less important than the command to love God. I think at our best, we we view the way these two commandments connect to each other like this because we have such a high view of God. Right? It feels like the command to love God is so important because God is so important that any other command outside of that command has to be significantly less important. Like There has to be a chasm in between the two. And I don't think that that's right. And I don't think that that's right based off of what we've seen in this text this morning. First of all, if you notice the language that Jesus uses in his interaction with the religious leaders, you'll notice that he says that the, the first and greatest commandment is like the second commandment. Or better said, the second commandment is like the first commandment. Now that language, the second commandment, it's like the first commandment, I think that's pretty significant. Uh, Sean, how significant is it? Well, you can just keep reading. You see, in the very next breath, Jesus lumps the two together, and he says 
that if you do them both, then you will have done all that God requires of you. Well, he doesn't say that specifically, but he says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's essentially what he's saying. The law is how God reveals his moral will to creation, to people. And the prophets are the people that God sends when his people rebel against his moral will. So when he says, if you do these things, you will fulfill the law and the prophets, essentially what he's saying is, you're going to do everything that I ask of you. So good luck with that. This morning's sermon is all about answering the question, why? Why should we love our neighbor? Why does God command us to love our neighbor? And I think the answer to that question is right here in this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, I want to propose to you this morning that we should love our neighbor because loving our neighbor is loving God. So if you're a note taker, there's your thesis. I want to propose to you this morning that the reason why we should love our neighbor is because loving our neighbor is loving God. Said another way, loving God and loving your neighbor are two sides of the same coin. So let me pray, and then I'm going to try to unpack this for the rest of the sermon. Lord God, who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not me. But your spirit is here in this room. Your word is alive, active, and it will work in our hearts. For those who are here this morning, Lord, who may be hardened towards your word and towards your son Jesus, I pray that you'll soften them and allow them to be renewed with a fresh insight, fresh love, fresh peace. For those who are here who are burdened, I pray that you will refresh them. For those who are here and are prideful, I pray that you will humble them. But Lord, I pray that you will build all of us up together into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so, that thesis statement, loving God is loving your neighbor, uh, it could seem to be, for some, on the verge of blasphemy, okay? Okay. it could use a little more nuance, right? Uh, We certainly do want to maintain the distinction between our creator and his creation. And it seems like that statement could conflate the two. But it's difficult to say things in a concise and pithy way and always maintain the kind of nuance that you would want to maintain for theological reasons. So let me take a moment to unpack that statement, give it a little more nuance, and hopefully remove myself from any charges of blasphemy. Uh, Christians believe in the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Now, if you're like me and you didn't grow up in the church, that probably doesn't mean anything to you. Even if you did grow up in the church, you're like, Sean, I don't speak Latin. Well, the Imago Dei is just a Latin phrase and it means the image of God. And the doctrine of the Imago Dei means that all human beings, every last one of them, every size, shape, and color, Every education level, every ethnicity, every, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, healthy and not so healthy. There's not, there is no such thing as a human being who does not fall into this category as having been created in the image of God. 
You can see this from a thousand different places in the Bible, but all of those places flow from this one verse in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, which reads like this. This is God creating mankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This comes at the tail end of God's creation acts. There's nothing, darkness, void, and God speaks ex nihilo. He speaks and out of nothing he creates everything. And as God goes about his business of creating and he's separating the light from the dark and the land from the sea and the air, he begins to create life form. And he starts with plant life. And then after that, he moves on to animal life. And then finally, at the apex, at the crescendo of God's creation, he creates you and me. He creates mankind. And he creates us in his image. Now, what does it mean that we're created in the image of God? Well, there's, there's one illustration that almost everyone uses all the time in order to teach on this. It's a cliche illustration. But guys, I got to tell you, I think it's cliche for a reason. I haven't thought of a better illustration. So the illustration goes something like this. Human beings are like mirrors. God put us as human beings here on the earth in his place. God reigns in the heavens and all everywhere. He's invisible. And so he created us here as these little, these little mirrors to reflect him on the earth, to reflect his image to the nations. So when you look at a human being, what you see is a reflection of the God that you cannot see in heaven. That is the Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei. Now what that means for us as human beings is that we have inherent value and dignity and worth. So although we are not God, and uh, despite what your TV preacher has said, we are not little gods, we do image God, we do picture God. So the reason why the second commandment, love your neighbor, is like the first commandment, that is the reason why it's significantly weighty and it's right up there next to the first commandment to love God, is because your neighbor is created in the image of God. So when you love your neighbor, you are in a very real sense loving God himself. You know, I, the easiest way for me to think about this now as a dad, as my children walk out of the room for the last time, is I think about patience. You know, everybody who's met patience, they go, man, she is you, right? Like, raise your hand if you've said that to me in this room, right? You look at patience, especially as she's eating, right? <laughs> to my shame. And you go, man, she is you, right? And it, it's not just in the way she looks. It's in every aspect of our personality. It's in her impulses and her proclivities and I'm afraid of what's going to happen when she's a teenager, because I remember my teenage years. But when you, when you understand that patience isn't me, but that she is an extension of me, then you understand that to love her is in a very real sense to love me. I think that's a good picture of the Imago Dei. Now, conversely, to hate your fellow man is to hate God. In a very real sense, to hate your fellow man is to hate God. As a quick aside, I just want to point out to you, I don't know if you've ever stopped and wondered, like, man, why 
does Satan seem to be so hostile towards human beings? Well, friends, it's for this very reason. The reason why Satan hates human beings and expends his energy trying to get us to hate each other and to pursue our mutual destruction is because he hates the God that is in us because of the Imago Dei. Satan knows that he is utterly powerless to destroy God. So he does the next best thing. He destroys those who bear the image of God. It would be as if a man hated me so much, but he couldn't get to me, he tried to kill my child. Now, I wonder if you've ever considered just how distinct human beings are from all other aspects of creation, including other living things, plant life, animal life. I know many modern thinkers would have you believe that human beings are just the latest iteration in the development of the hominid species. Nothing special, really, in this vast universe of time and chance acting on matter. But I think we all know instinctively that that's just not quite right. I think we all know instinctively that there is something significant about human beings, something distinct that makes us different than everything else in creation. We try to suppress that truth. We try to suppress it in unrighteousness. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the sermon. But this reality, the reason why, the the fact that we are different as human beings, it's the reason why we can clip the grass and trim the roses and pick the lilies of the field And our consciences don't bother us at all about taking plant life, right? This is the reason why we can shoot the cow for steak, kill the pig for bacon, sacrifice the lamb for his succulent little chops. You can say amen to that one too. We understand that although all of God's creation is good and beautiful and full of value, There's something different about mankind. And that thing that's different is that we alone bear the image of God. And so we shoot a cow and we eat his insides with ketchup. But Fred down at the hardware store, we can't kill him and turn him into sausage. Have you ever thought about the fact that, much to the chagrin of some of my hippie friends, you know, there's no command in the Bible to love God plant life. There's no command in the Bible to love animals. Now, it's true, there are verses in the Bible that tell us not to abuse animals, right? So you can take, for example, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. It says, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Don't abuse animals. And we should have a good theology of stewardship over God's good creation. He doesn't give us this creation for us to just, you know, set the world on fire because it belongs to us. No, that's not what's happening. But there's a big difference between preventing abuse of creation and promoting the highest order of dignity in certain parts of creation. You know, uh, as Christians, we all know about the Great Commission. That's where God sends us out as his people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But long before the Great Commission, at the very beginning, when God first created 
mankind. He gave us something called the creation mandate. And in this creation mandate, God tells humans that all of the earth was given to us to rule over and to subdue. So if you look on the screen here, Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 29, it reads like this. And, and God blessed them right after he made them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. What you see in this creation mandate is that God gives us as human beings all of creation to rule over, to exercise dominion over. But he doesn't use that language when he talks to us about other human beings. He doesn't say, rule over your brother and sister. No, he says, you must love your fellow man. Why the distinction? Why rule over every last aspect of creation, including other living beings, but love your fellow man? Well, it's because we're created in his image and in his likeness. And because of that, we have inherent value, dignity, and worth. Sean, that's like the 10th time you've said that. We get it. Do you? One more time. We are image bearers of God, and because of that, we have inherent value, dignity, and worth. Uh, it's a sure sign of our sin that we try to rule over our fellow man and try to rob him of the glory that he was created to have by God. To make matters worse, we also try to steal the glory of God and man and then give it away to other lesser things. In order to, to, to see that a little bit more clearly, uh, can we just all turn to Romans chapter 1 in our Bible? Let's turn to Romans 1. And we're going to do a little bit of reading. Do your best to try to stay with me, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of pull some things out of this, okay? Some of the happiest verses in the Bible. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So there are a couple of things I want you to see 
from these verses. Number one, Paul says that sin causes us to suppress the truth. Uh, This shouldn't be a controversial point, but it often is. I don't understand. Guys, just think about your own life. Think about how often you've had interactions with someone where you tell them the plain truth and they sit there and they call it a lie. They deny. It doesn't, sometimes people can be so self-deceived, so bent on a particular thing that like you can hold blue in front of their face and they'll look at it and they'll go like, no, that's red. You say, hey, everybody in the room, what color is this? And everybody in the room will say blue and they'll go, nah, it's red. Right? You know what suppressing the truth is like. Uh, our friend and, and ex-elder, uh, Russell Berger, his illustration for this is really helpful. He says what we do is kind of like when, uh, when kids are in the pool and there's like a beach ball in the pool and they really, really want to hold the water bottle, I mean, excuse me, to hold the, the ball under the water. What, what almost always happens? The ball always wins. No matter how big and how heavy you are, no matter how small that little ball of air is in the pool, that little ball always wins. You can't suppress it. Well, that's what happens with us as human beings in our sin. God has given us the plain truth about himself, about about ourselves, about life in this world. We know it. We know it at an instinctual level. And yet we try to suppress it. We try to hold it under the waters of lies. It doesn't work. In its more abstract form, you see this in the fact that we just deny the fact that God exists at all, right? Romans 1 says that the existence of God has been made plain to us. We all know that God exists. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. The vast majority of all humans through all history have believed in some divine presence outside of themselves. But the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In its most extreme and concrete form, we see this suppression, like even in our own day, in our own society, that is calling on us to call a girl a boy and a boy and a girl and to demand that everyone else agrees with us about that. That's just an expression, a current expression of an old sin that Paul is addressing in these verses. You can see this this way of doing life summarized in verse 21. Go back to verse 21 real quick and you can see it there. There Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. That's what all that is. All that suppression of truth, that's just... We become futile in our thinking. We, we don't know how to think. We don't know how to reason. We become like the beasts of the field rather than image bearers of God who have the ability to exercise logic and reason that we have received from our Creator. And then finally, in verse 23, we come to what is tragically called the great exchange. Human beings... In our sin, we exchange the glory of God for lesser glories. Look there. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about rejecting God. But the reason why I'm talking about this is because I think a big part of the reason why we don't love our neighbor is because we reject the God that we see in our neighbor. One of the ways that we can do what he's talking about here, rejecting the glory of God, is by rejecting the glory of God that we plainly see in our fellow man. What Paul is doing in these verses is he's offering a meta-analysis of the human condition as it exists in active rebellion. 
And what you see at the heart of Paul's analysis is that human beings in active rebellion, what they want to do is deny, exchange, ignore, and destroy the image of God wherever, whenever, and however that image may be found. And because human beings can't scale the walls of heaven, we tried that. Tower of Babel didn't work out too well for us. Because we can't scale the walls of heaven and conquer God himself, we do the next best thing. We hate each other. We try to destroy each other. We kill each other. We enslave each other. But in order for us to do that, we have to do what Romans 1 is talking about here. We have to find some way to suppress the truth that we know that we can't do this to each other, right? God gives us a conscience, and even when our conscience is really jacked up, we still know this is not right. I can't do this to my brother or sister, this person that I was created in God's image. Something's wrong here. So we have to find some way to circumvent our conscience or to calibrate our conscience or to sear our conscience or to eradicate our conscience so that when we mistreat our neighbor, we don't feel the burn. We don't feel the sting. We don't feel the conviction. History is replete with examples of people trying to find ways around their conscience so that they can hate their brother. You take the Hutus and the Tutsis, for example. I know that as Americans, we tend to think that ethnic hostility is a uniquely American thing. It's not. We've given it our own branding, our own flavor. But friends, this is a universal problem. You saw it in Uganda, the Hutus and the Tutsis battling over that land The Hutus slaughtered over 800,000 Tutsis. Men, women, children, didn't matter. They slaughtered them all. Well, how do they justify this? Well, the Hutus trained all their warriors to view the Tutsis as cockroaches. Now, does anyone in this room feel bad about stepping on a cockroach? No way. That's how they got around it. We saw the same kind of thing happen in Nazi Germany with the Jews. Not just with the Jews, though. You saw it with the disabled. You saw it even with homosexuals. Friends, just because we say that homosexuality is a sin, and it is, and we do say that, does not mean that people who are in the sin of homosexuality are not made in God's image and likeness. That sin does not rob them of their inherent value, dignity, and worth If anything, that calls us to love them more, to share more truth with them, to be more compassionate with them. But the the Germans wanted to kill them all, to get rid of them all. There was a targeted, coordinated effort to purify the human race. Now, how did they justify that? Well, for the Nazis, it was pretty easy. They accepted a Darwinian worldview, which basically said that human beings are still in this process of development and we're on our way towards this final perfect iteration in order for us to get there we have to kind of purify the race as it stands now we have to get all the dregs out you know human beings were only a few steps removed from the great apes so there's no conflict there george orwell once famously quipped that there are some ideas that are so absurd that only an intellectual could believe them you saw the fruit of that in nazi germany 
When human beings are not image bearers of God, but rather highly evolved apes, the violence is just a lot easier to stomach. Now, lest you pat yourself on the American back, because we are so much more advanced than the Nazis, let me just remind you of 2016. You remember of Justice for Harambe? You remember that? When we killed a gorilla to save a human's life? Remember how that rhetoric surrounding that event sounded? I could not believe how many people I heard say, human beings are just more evolved apes. What makes it right for us to save that human but kill that ape? Justice for Harambe. I joked and did it sarcastically, ironically. They did it seriously. The same worldview that was alive and well there is alive and well here. We've just handled it differently. Friends, do I even need to talk about the way that African Americans have been treated for the vast majority of our history in this country? Uh, You should know that uh, I don't believe that the pulpit is a place for performance, and I especially don't think it's a place for virtue signaling. Now, I know right now everyone is talking about race. And there's nobody who's not talking about race. And everybody who goes on Facebook and Twitter and social media and Instagram, everyone wants to show that they're less racist than the other person. So you might be tempted to believe that what I'm saying right now is just especially in light of current events. Well, friends, if you think that, you don't know me at all. I don't play to the tune of the crowd. I don't preach in response to the demands for virtue signaling. It just so happens that in God's providence, this sermon was scheduled to be preached on this Sunday. And since we're here, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about the evil history in this country and the way that we have ignored, denied, and even tried to kill the image of God in our black brothers and sisters. That has happened structurally through really evil laws. It has also happened systemically. Wherein, yeah, this guy in South Alabama who gets brought up on murder charges, even though we know for a fact he didn't commit the murder, we're just kind of happy to let a black guy die as a scapegoat for the community. Friends, I am no race baiter. This is just our history. And we have to be honest about it. Do I think we've made progress? You better believe I think we've made progress. I had a conversation with somebody the other day who said he thought no progress has been made at all in the last 400 years. I think that's outlandish. I think it's ridiculous. I praise God for the progress that we've made in this country. Friends, it doesn't mean that we still don't have the temptation to look at any of our neighbors, our Mexican neighbors, our Asian neighbors, our black neighbors, other white neighbors for various reasons, and to denigrate the image of God in them. So be careful. We could speak about this same phenomenon in a different accent by talking about what happened in Australia with the Aborigines. We could talk about this with an even different accent, like the conquistadores. You like the way I said that? I speak Spanish. I can do that. And the way that when they got here, one of the main debates that they were having amongst each other was whether or not they could rape and pillage and do all these bad things to the natives because they were trying to figure out whether or not the natives actually had souls. That was the way they were trying to get around it. You see, if these natives, if they're more like brutes than humans, then we can justify killing them. 
because they actually don't have the image of God. Finally, I think we should consider, and I'm choosing every word here on purpose, specific, calculated, the greatest injustice that the world has ever known, legalized abortion. In our country alone since 1970, 43 million, 319,311 babies have been killed. And boy, oh boy, can we get creative in ways of trying to excuse ourselves, of trying to say that they are not fully human, that they don't have the image of God. We say, ah, well, it doesn't have full sentience. As if if you fell off a ladder and you were in a coma, it would justify me killing you. We say, oh, well, it's still in the womb. As if passing through a birth canal fundamentally changes what was alive in the birth canal just a few moments prior to that passing. We say, well, it's still dependent upon the mother. We even use the horrific word of calling a, a baby a parasite. Scientifically, that's just not accurate. As if a baby fresh out of the womb, like I'm looking at my sister Allison holding her precious baby, as if that baby is still not completely dependent upon her mother, and as if that baby will still not be completely dependent upon her mother for a very long time. We say it's just a clump of cells, as if that clump of cells will one day grow up to be a ficus, or a fern, or a gerbil, or anything other than a human being. The gods of comfort and sex and licentiousness and freedom in this country have led us to try to find 10 million different ways to excuse, to excuse that which is utterly inexcusable. We kill babies. And our leaders would have it so. And we have grown apathetic. When we, in our sin and rebellion against God, attack the image of God in our fellow man, we are attacking God himself. But friends, when we love our fellow man, we are loving God himself. And so Jesus says, the command to love your neighbor is like the first command. That is, you should strive hard after obedience to this command. You should consider ways to cultivate your ability to carry out this command. You should be thinking of creative ways to love your neighbor. You should be exerting the kind of energy that you exert towards loving God to find a way to love your neighbor. I spent an hour in a very uncomfortable conversation with a friend yesterday in light of this command. It was not easy, but it was good, and it was important. This is what it means to be a Christian, friend. We don't get to choose the first one and deny the second one. Now, before closing, uh, I, want us to, I want us to consider Jesus. Uh, earlier in the sermon, I told you that the Imago Dei says that human beings are 
we're reflectors of God's image. We're like mirrors that reflect him. But what I didn't talk about was the fact that in our sin, that mirror is broken. I don't know how many of you guys, when you were kids, if you ever like broke a mirror and like watched it scatter, you're not supposed to do it as bad juju, bad luck, but I did it. Maybe that's why things went so bad for me for so long. But if you've ever broken a mirror and then tried to look into it, what you find is that, uh, you know, just when it kind of spiderwebs, what you find is that you can still see your reflection. The, the ability for the mirror to reflect doesn't go away. The only difference is, is your reflection is, is marred. It's broken up. You know, your nose is over here, your eyes down here. You go to talk and your teeth are doing this. That's what sin does to us. We're supposed to reflect God's image. And in a sense, we do. But we don't do it like we're supposed to. We don't reflect his glory like we should. But there was a man who came and who perfectly imaged God. His name was Jesus. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus and the way that he imaged God. Hebrews 1.3. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And oh, what good news, friends, it was that Jesus came down to dwell with us in the muck and the mire. He came down to be with us in our broken state. And you would think that all of God's creation would rejoice and celebrate and receive and embrace the great high king of heaven who came down to dwell with us as people. That is not what happened, friends. The same sinful tendency that we talked about from Romans 1 that tendency to want to grab the image of God and destroy it was seen most pointedly when we killed Jesus. The image of God in its purest form came down to be with us and we hung him on a cross in hatred. But little did we know in our sin and our rebellion that his death would restore the image of God in us. Turn with me one more verse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Talking about being recreated by Jesus, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you see that? Because we are in Christ, my Christian brothers and sisters, the marred image of God in us is being renewed. That's why when you hear me pray as a pastor, one of the things that you often hear me pray is that God will make us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. In the church, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God is fixing that broken mirror. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God is making us more and more and more back into the image of God. Friends, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, I want you to know that you were created for more than whatever you're experiencing now. 
You were created more than this broken reflection. You were created to be like the God who made you and to reflect him perfectly. But the only way that you can partake in that is if you recognize the fact that you are broken, if you admit that you have rebelled, and if you return to the God who loves you and who will gladly receive you in love. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to not only be hearers of the word, but also doers. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.